Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Or savory. Those are the things that ought to divide the church. I tell you what, very important things. Uh, all right. Well, with the kids gone now, uh, we'll eventually be in Isaiah 65. It'll take a few minutes to get there. Um, I remember an assignment. Uh, I don't know if it was college, seminary, or, or, or some other organization that I was a part of, but I absolutely dreaded uh, this assignment. Uh, it was... <laughs> Uh, I'll label it, it was the evangelism elevator pitch. Anybody ever had to do one of those? You don't want to raise your hands probably, that's understandable, I'm sure. Uh, But the idea was to prepare us to share the gospel in uh, the time frame that it would take to ride an elevator, which I'm assuming is not like the Empire State Building kind of elevator uh, where Elf, you know, does the... Any, nobody? Okay, that's fine. Um, but probably just a 30 to 45 second minute long kind of thing. And I dreaded this assignment. I dreaded the idea of the assignment uh, for a number of reasons. One, I felt this need to get the gospel right in one minute or less. Um, I thought, okay, what are the important parts? Okay, sin, that's definitely important. Got to get that. The cross, definitely. Forgiveness, okay. Confession, all those kinds of things. Um, And then I I thought about, I've got to be confident in how I present this and what I said. Um, But then what would happen if I didn't get it right? And then what would happen if this person didn't respond? Um, Was I their only chance to hear about Jesus? This is why it was a dreaded assignment for me. Um, The pressure was quite something. Looking back on it now, though, uh, I have an entirely different view of it altogether. Um, One that believes I would actually be doing the gospel an injustice if it only took me a minute to explain. So what's interesting, uh, and and Leah, you can put this picture up, is uh, in the early uh, Greek papyrus manuscripts, um, you can see kind of towards the top there, uh, it, the, the inscription is the gospel according to. So the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to John and to Luke. Now what's interesting is it takes Matthew 28 chapters to gospel. It takes Mark 16 chapters to gospel. It takes Luke 24 chapters to gospel. It takes John 21 chapters to gospel. Apparently, if you're going to gospel the way the gospel writers gospel, you really need a long elevator ride. I begin this way this morning uh, for two reasons. Um, And so uh, first, this is just personal and pastoral. Um, In in reference to to last week's message and um, just my own sitting with it. So I've I've preached more sermons than I care to admit or probably than I should. Um, 
And I was unsettled more uh, throughout this week about last Sunday than I've ever been. Um, And it's not what I said. It's what I didn't say. Let me clarify that. I don't feel badly about anything I said. I feel strongly about a lot of what I did say. But it's what I didn't say. This is probably a good place to say that when we gather from week to week, we are gospeling. We are continuing to tell the story. We're not approaching the scripture from a series of propositional truths to try to live up to or to prove like a mathematical equation or to whack people over the head with the truth of the Bible. We are attempting when we gather together to to live and to continue to live the greatest story that's ever been told. Some weeks we're going to tell that story better than the others. Some weeks I'm going to tell that story better than the others. As, As your pastor and on behalf of anyone who comes up to this pulpit, I want you to realize that we can only describe what we say up here in part at best. Uh, Chris Green, one of my favorite authors and theologians, says uh, he has this idea of continuing to fail faithfully forward. And so um, I feel like that's what we do when we gather together is we continue to fail faithfully forward because anything that we do or anything that we say is always only going to be in part. So what didn't I say? Uh, For those of you who were here last week, you have no clue what I'm talking about, so welcome back. Shame on you for missing church. I'm just kidding, 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 kidding. Um, But last week we dealt with this passage in Luke chapter 20, and and one of my favorite things to do with, with passages of scripture is to help us to hear them differently, because... With a lot of passages, we, we, we hear them and there's almost this uh, automatic reaction where we know what this passage of Scripture means. And so we dealt with this passage where the Sadducees uh, come and test Jesus with this uh, just ridiculous scenario of a woman who's married seven times because her husbands keep dying off. And, and out of that then, um, I, I, I address this, this um, hello? I, I address this thing, uh, this belief that we get that there's, there's no marriage in heaven uh, because that's what we pull from this passage of scripture. And so hopefully I was helpful in saying that that passage of scripture actually isn't addressing that uh, whatsoever. But then I went into pastoral mode and uh, my aim, because we've had a lot of loss here over the last 16 months, was to comfort uh, those folks who are grieving. And so my aim, especially for those who've lost spouses over the last uh, 16 months or longer, it doesn't have to be just in this last bit, but was to bring some comfort that I do believe that our relationships here just don't simply, they're not simply erased when we get into the age to come. Uh, We don't lose them, uh, but they are in some substance there and present with us. and, and, and I, I, wrestled and I wrestled with what I said afterwards um, because I thought about the folks within our congregation here who heard that and who've been abused by their spouses, um, who've been divorced, um, who maybe currently are just sticking it out in a marriage that's quite unfulfilling. And to think that you're going to be married in heaven is dreadful. Um, 
And so it's not what I said last week that I had trouble with, but it's what I didn't say. Um, maybe nobody else thought of that. Uh, I, I, I am not responding to any emails. <laughs> Strangely enough. Now, actually, you all are great. You don't email me that much regarding this kind of stuff. Um, and I would encourage that non-practice to continue. So this isn't in response to anything but my, my, uh, but my own nagging uh, pastoral sense that um, I just, I, I didn't, and nor can we ever, say everything that needs to be said. Um, and it was particularly disturbing for my own heart to think it was the most vulnerable and the hurt and the confused among us who might have left uh, a bit discouraged. So I just want to name that. I just want to name that. Uh, if you happen to be one of the ones, and, and maybe I'm raising an issue that might not to be, need to be raised, but um, if you happen to be one of the ones who fall into, into that scenario, um, where last week was difficult, first of all, I want to apologize. I want to say I'm sorry. I want to invite you into conversation because I am convinced of this. Uh, that the age to come, the age of the new heavens and the new earth is good news for everybody in every situation, uh, and that God's renewing work can and probably will look different from person to person. That's not relative. That's just simply because God is compassionate, and God knows you. God knows your experience. God knows your life. Um, and so I think whatever that looks like for you in the new heavens and the new earth will be good, although it might look differently from person to person. Um, just sharing personally for me, I think God's preparing me a big sandbox um, because I've, uh, I've not been a kid ever. Um, I've not learned how to play well, not play nicely. I feel like I do that fairly well. Um, but I've not learned to play much. Um, early on in my life, my, my dad left for a series of years, which meant that I was the, the young man of the house. And um, so my, my dream, and this is not biblical whatsoever, but if I'm thinking about how God can be compassionate to me in the age to come, he'll let me play for a little while. Uh, so the house that I'm getting built, whatever that looks like, it's probably going to have a sandbox in it of some sort. So the way, uh, the, the other reason, um, so that's last Sunday, I'm just putting that to the side now. That's done, that's over, let's talk about it if we need to. Uh, but the second reason is in thinking about today's passage, uh, that I bring this idea of gospeling up, that I bring this idea that we can ever only really tell this story in part, um, is because of this, you and I are stewards of this story. We're stewards of this story. Um, we tell this story with our whole lives and our whole being. And all of us have limits on how well we can tell this story. The story of Jesus. We're never going to get this story 100% right. We're always going to be coming at it, as Eugene Peterson says, from a slant, from an angle. Um, one day, we'll experience it in fullness, but in the time being, the best we can do is try our best to describe. 
We live in a world, friends, uh, that longs for beauty and is very ugly. Um, Week after week, we gather here to gospel one another. I don't know if you ever think about this, but this is what we're doing when we're gathering together. We are gospeling one another. Uh, It's not just me that's gospeling you. We are gospeling each other. I sat in a small circle in Sunday school this morning, and we gospeled one another as we shared where we are in our lives of faith and the questions that we're asking and the struggles that we're having. We sat in that circle, and we didn't quote scripture to each other, but yet we gospeled together. We continued to direct our lives and direct one another to the story of Jesus. This is what we do as the people of God. We gospel. We gospel to one another and we gospel to the world. And a couple weeks ago, a month ago, maybe two, I I clicked on a link because somebody, um, some pastor somewhere, um, you know, put up put up a, a video clip, this is what the gospel is. I'm like, well, I, I'm interested to hear, what is this gospel? And it was three and a half minutes long, and it was the gospel probably that we've all been raised with that gives you the, the whole process of what happens and, and how you can get from one place to another and, and the role God plays and the role we play. And, you know, it's convenient. It's convenient, and it's not inaccurate, but it's not the whole thing. And it never will be the whole thing. Because the best we can do is continue to describe and tell this beautiful story of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Of what impact that's having in our lives. Of what impact it's had on the world. We're only ever going to make a stab at it. Throughout the week, you and I, we accumulate the grime of the world and we enter Uh, into this place to be washed again in the waters of our baptism and to leave to point others and one another to the beauty of the gospel that is Jesus again and again and again. Next week is beautiful things, and I know one of the two stories that are going to be told, um, and I can't wait. Um, Part of gospeling is just telling our story telling the story of what God is doing. Even telling the story of what God's not doing. Because even in, 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 in telling the story of what's not happening, there is a longing and a desire that's pointing us to God. So friends, we have a beautiful story. Um, and so we'll tell it again from Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25 this morning. This is what Isaiah writes. See, and again, this just picks up from last week. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought to be a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people. So will be the days of my people. 
My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw with the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. This passage comes to us in what is called Third Isaiah. Last week we talked about the new heavens and the new earth in a future sense. We're going to bring that future into the present. Uh, but Isaiah is broken up into three books. Um, the, they're, they're kind of books within a book. And the verses that we read this morning come in what's called Third Isaiah. And they come addressed to the group of people who are not heading into exile, who are not in exile, but the people who have returned from exile. Now, if you're in exile, if you think about the people of Judah and Israel being in exile, you might think that returning from exile is a good thing. But it's hard. It might be good, but it's hard. Things are not how they've left it. If you go by the, uh, the, the time span of the exile, has been about 70 years, so you're talking at least a generation or two has come and gone in, in that time. The young ones who left during that time of exile are now old. The old ones have died. There are new ones that have been born in exile that have come back to this place that their people have talked about because that's part of who the, the, the identity of, of God's people. They just continue to tell their story. And so you have these little ones who are brought up in exile who hear the stories of David and the stories of Solomon and the stories of, of the parting of the Red Sea and all of these things. And then they come back to this incredible, glorious land that they've heard about. And all they find is rubble everywhere. They walk among the rubble. To give us a visceral sense of what they come back to, you might imagine the bombed out towns and cities of Ukraine or other war-torn places of the earth. That's what they're coming back to. They're not coming back to this wonderful palace, this wonderful temple. Everything is in ruins. Everything has been destroyed. And so these words that we read are beautiful words. They're absolutely beautiful words, but they don't come to a people or a place that is just experiencing this awe and this beauty. They come to a people and they come to a place who are in the midst of ruin. These are not words of the sweet by and by. They're not just, oh, the heaven somewhere out there that's going to solve all of our problems. The origination of these words come to a people who are walking amongst the rubble. The very people who are going to be tasked with rebuilding this nation and this place. They're going to face long and hard and arduous work and for days and years, it's going to seem like they're getting nowhere. They're spinning their wheels. Things aren't happening as quickly as they want to. This is the people to whom these words come from. They're not a word of escape. 
These beautiful words that are given to Isaiah are not words of escape, but they are words to enter into what is the grime of what is, the destruction of what is, the hopelessness of what is. They are words to enter into that with hope, to give them some sort of substance that will sustain them in the midst of their rebuilding and their ruin. The homes that the future generations that will last for generations, these words come to the people who will be building these homes. The vineyards that will be rich in fruit throughout decades and generations to come, these vineyards have yet to be planted. The children who will be born have yet to be conceived. These are not shallow words of pseudo comfort. These are words that describe a transformation of a people who are in despair. And so they're coming back to a land and to a place that was theirs. They're coming back from exile. And that in and of itself is considered a work of God. But what they come back to is really nothing to look at. They come back to a lot of work needing to be done. They come back to a lot of rebuilding. Perhaps you can find your life somewhere within the context of that scene. Transformation is something that shows up several times throughout this passage. I'll, I'll point out a few places in 17, verses 17 and 18. Isaiah writes that the, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. The former things will not be remembered. It's not as if the memories are wiped from the exiles who've returned. Like there's this mental erasure that God is doing, and, and some people might take it to mean that. But the prophet is trying to help them understand through poetic words the nature of what God will create and how it will be entirely different from the nature of those things before. They are returning to a place from which they went into exile because of the rottenness of the hearts of the people of that place. And God, like God always does, brings a people back to that place and says, here we go again, let's do it again, let's try it again, I'm with you again. The failures of previous generations do not dictate the future of this generation. The past for these returning exiles is not held against them. Instead, God desires to create something new. The Hebrew word for create in verse 18 is barach. And it's the same one that's used in Genesis 1. This is creation and recreation language, and it seems that our God is a God who doesn't uh, just let the rubble and the ruin and the chaos have the last word. We see verse, in verse 25, too, this idea of transformation. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion and the ox will, or the lion will eat straw like the ox. Just think for a minute about the nature of these two things. The nature of the wolf is to feed off of the lamb. The nature of the lion is to kill the ox. The predatory nature of things, the nature of things has changed. 
God transforms the nature of these animals altogether. And as he transforms the nature of the animals, the relationship between the two changes too. Isaiah's words here are looked back on as the scripture unfolds. Revelation 21 will look back on these words as a portrait of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. But here's the stunning things. These words are not eternal, first and foremost. These words are first and foremost given as words of hope to a group of people walking among the rubble. How is God going to transform that? For us here at LBIC, um, the centering statement that we use to describe our congregation is that we are a community of people being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. This passage from Isaiah helps us to get our heads a little more about who we describe ourselves to be around this idea of transformation. The vision given by Isaiah doesn't offer a way to escape the rubble that the returning exiles see. Instead, these words lie just beyond them, just beyond them, calling them forward and giving them a vision of what God desires to create among them as they go about the work of creating and co-creating themselves. Friends, you and I are participants in our transformation. We don't just sit and wait for God to do something but we actively seek to participate in the creating work of God in us and around us. This is the idea of what discipleship is or spiritual formation is the way we describe it here. We cooperate and we participate with the ongoing creating work of God, the transformational work that God is doing in our lives. We participate with that. Over the course of several hundred years, Jerusalem is rebuilt. And so these words come to these people, and, and uh, we don't know much about it, actually, uh, at least not from the Bible. Um, at the end of the prophets, uh, we, ha- we enter into what's called the intertestamental period. It's this time where there's some writings on it, but it didn't make it into our scriptures. And, um, but it's this time of rebuilding. And I I kind of think that's interesting, too. Because that work of rebuilding, again, that gets to the person of Jesus is quiet. Um, We don't know a lot about it. And at least in my life, I feel like that's how rebuilding happens, too. I participate, but I don't know exactly how it's being built again. I try to cooperate the best I can doing the things that I know to do while trusting that God is somehow mysteriously, faithfully at work in my life at the same time. I wish I was way beyond where I am and things were a lot clearer for me than they are. But it seems that the point is the cooperation and the participation. The point is taking this piece of rubble and refashioning the old house into something new. 
Paul's words in, uh, I think it's Romans 8, when he talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds, part of that work, that idea of being transformed there, it's, it's uh, the Greek there is literally the gutting of a house, so to speak. The remaking of all the interior stuff of the house. This is part of what the image of transformation gives to us. So friends, um, I wonder this morning as we gospel together, um, as we hold the limitations of what anybody can say about God, my limitations from last week, as we hold these words of Isaiah and the hope of Isaiah to a people in the midst of rubble, I wonder, as we gospel together again this morning and confess that this is not an easy thing, I wonder where you find yourselves this morning in the gospeling story. How do you hear these words of hope? Do they convict perhaps a pessimistic view that you have of the world that it's all just in rubble and it's not ever going to be rebuilt anyway? Or do they call you forward in hope and give you a little bit more substance and substance to put another foot in front of the other? Do they help you get out of bed in the morning and live faithfully one more day? Um, personally, I'll just say this, and I, I want to clarify, I am being vulnerable and not needy. Okay. Um, I need Ethan's story next week. I need Julie's story next week. I need to hear words of hope. I'm in the same boat you are. I need gospel too. So I wonder where you might be. Wherever you are uh, this morning, the beautiful thing is that God receives you, receives us. The table is actually, I think, if there's an elevator pitch, let's just pitch the table. Not pitch the table, let's pitch the table. <laughs> Clarifying. Here the land has yielded its harvest. The vine has yielded its fruit. And there's a home that will never fade. There's a life that will never end. In the depth of this simple act that you could mine forever is perhaps part of the fullness of the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus that is coming to bear down on our own lives. 
And so it's to this table I invite us this morning again. Let's let this table gospel us one more time. Amen.